and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Magnus Grimland, who is the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Antler. Magnus, welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. So today we're going to talk about the VC space and, and Antler is a new platform in this world. Can you give a bit of context to the listeners around what Antler is doing? We saw as fast-growing tech companies grow, a lot of the people who have been part of building those companies, not the founders, but the people who are in the second or third line, typically will go out there and build new, very fast-growing businesses. For example, in Stockholm, the Spotify alumni will build fast-growing businesses. In Sydney, the Atlassian, the people who are building Atlassian will go and build new fast-growing businesses. In, in the US, obviously, we've seen this for decades with Google alumni, Facebook alumni, the PayPal Mafia is probably the most famous one. And what we do is we work to attract people like that who have some great experience of, of building and scaling a business and then working with them on building new businesses from scratch around important problems to solve and truly scalable business models. And, you know, that, that is the mission of Antler. We work with exceptional founders to build fast-growing businesses around solving important problems. And what we contribute to them is, you know, access to great co-founders, you know, business model validation, and we also put in the first bit of capital through our pre-seed funds across the globe. And then we doubled down from series A to series C in you know, the fastest growing part of the portfolio at the same time as doing some direct investments into, into other fast growing tech businesses. Yes, yeah, so we were at early stage VC. We're now the largest venture builder in, in the world. We, we operate in, in Europe, uh, the US, Asia, Africa, Australia, and are expanding into a few new markets this year. So as you're thinking about the the types of new founders that you're looking for, you mentioned that many of these people have been part of the existing cohort of of great companies such as Google and and Facebook. You said they're already being part of it, so they know the drive of uh, what it means to to be part of a fast-moving business. What else do you look for when you're talking to sort of the the talent that would be then the next entrepreneur? Yeah, so I think there's there's a common misconception uh, in the world that a lot of founders um, kind of come straight out of college or they drop out of college and then they build very fast growing business. Yes, that happens. And, and we also invest in some of these, but the most successful founders out there, the people who build the most successful businesses these days and have uh, the least chance of failure are actually people with about 10 to 12 years work experience. They know in business area well, they know what their strengths are and they apply that to solve a new problem and to attack an area where you can create a lot of value. So those are, you know, the type of people typically we're looking for, but, you know, we have older and, and younger people also that, that we work with. There are three things that we typically look at for these individuals. A, can we identify a clear spike? Is there something that they're truly great at, preferably better than most people in the world? And most people, almost any person out there has a strength and some people have honed that strength to become really, really great at it. And, and founders typically are quite spiky individuals. The second is you want to see drive, the ability to get a lot done and execute. 
Uh, part of drive is linked to being passionate about solving a specific problem. So part of drive is passion and part of drive is just an executional skill set because there are a lot of people out there who are very excited about a lot of different things but then tend not to do something about it. But then in founders, you actually see that passion combined with the ability to execute. And then the third thing we look for is grit uh, because being a founder and building a fast growing company from scratch when you start off with one or two individuals uh, you know, it's tough. It's it's hard. I think you can't speak to a single founder who hasn't felt that there were many points at the time that they were building their business where they were very worried whether they would succeed or not. And uh, great founders will power through walls and, and stay and have that grittiness required to succeed, while founders that fail uh, have a tendency to kind of give up on the way. So those those are the three things we're looking at. How do you think between you know the founder having the grit and the determination versus the technical skill? Do you do you have some sort of a balance between the level of technical skill that you maybe expect for them to understand versus their management skill? Like obviously not everyone has all the skills out there, but how do you think about that as you're investing in maybe the broader team? Yes, I think it's a great point. What what we've seen is it's more important to be incredibly great at something than be average on everything. So you should first kind of identify what, what, what are you great at as a founder? Or if you're looking at the founder to invest in, what is this founder great at? And then you need to look at who is this founder surrounding themselves with. And if you are the founder, you need to think about, okay, this is my strength. In my co-founders, I need people who have different strengths in mind because there are just very few people, if any, who are insanely great at everything. So, you know, we, 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 and, and that spike can be that you're a great technical co-founder and you know how to build an amazing product or you're a great coder or you're a great AI specialist, but it could also just mean that you're a great operator or a great leader. If you're a great, you know, people leader, but you don't know how to build a product, then you should probably have a co-founder who has some of that product skill set uh, and the other way around. So we look much more in the diversity of the founder group and the founder team uh, than we do try to find all of those characteristics in one person because that's very seldom seldomly exists. And I think in most founders, they will be very aware of what they're great at and what they're not great at. You touched on a little bit earlier about, you know, the struggles for some entrepreneurs and people have a lot of ideas, but you need the grit and determination. There's also a lot of barriers to entry for many of these entrepreneurs as they start to create a business and they sort of fearful that it's a very long and hard journey. How do you think about sort of the journey for, for many entrepreneurs? Do, do a lot of them just need that leg up to, to kickstart them and then they, they get on their way? How do you think about the sort of people that you need to give that platform to? Yeah, so, so I also think it's, it's somewhat of a, a misconception in the private markets and especially in early stage VCs that you can make a founder a great founder or that you can kind of coach a great team to be a great team. That, that's, that's almost impossible. And uh, so instead, what you need to do as an investor is focus in on great founders and great founding teams that are working on something that really makes sense and then support them to create even more momentum or support them to get even better investors on board or get access to even more customers. So we see that very much as our role is, we, we want to identify great founders, great founding teams, great early stage companies. And then we have a global platform now of offices all across the globe. We have 500 advisors within a specific industry area. So if you need input on, let's say you're building a, 
uh, Rocket Engine Company. We will have people there who can help out. We're building a fintech company. We have 60 people in our network who are either professors focusing on this or fintech founders or executives of banks that can support you create more momentum. So that's really what we are focused on is ensuring that when we have identified a great founder or a great co-founder team or a great early stage business, we have created a platform that will maximize the momentum and the value we can give to them to become even better. So uh, to kind of synthesize the answer well, very quickly is, uh, we don't think we can make non-founders into founders or make founders you know, th that much better or, or make a non-succeeding business succeed. What we can do is make great founders and good early stage businesses create more momentum and increase the chance of very rapidly become a unicorn. It's interesting. Before we get to the unicorns, I've got to ask one more question around the founders around the world. You mentioned that you've got many operations globally. Do you see quite distinct ways that the people think around the world in terms of founders, like a, a founder that you'd see maybe in Silicon Valley or in Asia or in the Middle East, you know, or in Israel? Like, how do you think of, or do you, you know, what, what's your experience? I think is is the key thing there. Yeah, so I think it's there are a couple of things there. So one, obviously, we've seen tremendous diversity happening globally now in terms of where big, fast-growing businesses are built, right? So up until quite recently, you know, Silicon Valley and, and, and possibly certain areas in China had, had almost like a monopoly on, on, on building those big global tech platforms. And that has changed a lot just over the last few years, right? I mean, you're now building, you know, hundred billion dollar businesses out of out of Singapore, like C Group, uh, you know, Spotify out of Stockholm, at Lassen out of Sydney. In the US, you're also seeing fast growing tech companies being built from way more cities in in the US. So there's this diversity in terms of where great companies are being built. The other thing that we see as a trend is. Obviously, founders are doing two things. A, they are attacking the biggest opportunities and, and problems that exist in the market that they're in. So, for example, we operate in, in, in Kenya, and Kenya is at a different uh, stage of development in terms of online platforms and online services and, 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 and B2B products and so on than, for example, in our San Francisco or Sydney offices. So you'll see a lot of founders focusing in more on proven models, meaning launching and local innovation. So adapting already existing uh, those successful models to, uh, to the African ecosystem. Well, for example, in Singapore, Australia, US, London, you'll see more deep tech type innovation, which are using technology to drive, you know, completely new products to the market. So there are differences like this. And then the third thing I think is you see uh, there are competency levels being built in certain cities based on the access to talent and mentors that they have there. So for example, the UK has become a bit of a hub for fintech in Europe. I think Sydney very much has become a very interesting place to build global B2B SaaS models because you have Canvas and Atlassian who've done it very successfully. And then you have a mentorship there and investors there who understand those business models, which means that when new founders come in, they can tap onto that existing network to grow, grow a global platform. So these are just, just some of the learnings we've seen. Let's go back to the characteristics of some of these new unicorns. We've seen a, a continual evolution over the last, it seems like every five years, there's a, a, a new wave of unicorns coming through. Now, what's your analysis on, on the unicorns that have been coming through? What, what are the key characteristics that have, that have made them most successful? 
Well, so I think it, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, right? If you, you can if you can put together an exceptional co-founding team with some diversity in it, and ensure that you're working on a problem that really makes sense to solve, right? And 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 we we work a lot with our founders to ensure that we, we truly validate uh, the business model that they're working on because. One thing is, you know, you and I can sit down and we can discuss, hey, wouldn't it be interesting to solve this specific problem? And then we'd go out and raise some capital and start building it. But I think the great teams and the great founders out there, they actually go and, you know, they, they will draw down a list of if it's a B2B product, what are the hundred most exciting customers to get on board onto this? And then even before they started building, they'll, they'll call up all of these customers and try to sell the product. And through that even before they started building the product, they get a lot of validation because some might even sign a contract before you started building it. Some might sign an MOU and, and some will just say, hey, why, why would I ever buy something like this? And all of that feeds back into iterating your business model and making it smarter. So I think what we have seen as the most important part of, of, of getting to, to that type of scale is just ensuring that you have a credible team working on something that really makes sense. And there are, unfortunately, I think a lot of, investments in the private markets going into teams that aren't strong enough they just won't be able to pull it off and uh, be serious enough to, to to make it work or that haven't spent advocate time ensuring that they're addressing a big enough problem it's interesting you mentioned there about the problem and and the problems can keep evolving right and and because there is so much competition and the ability to raise funds at the current moment is seems to be pretty easy for a lot of startups that have got a good idea. There's a lot of interest in the VC space, particularly. You know, how do you think about the, also the longevity of, of the investments that you you know, allocate towards? Yeah. So as mentioned earlier, one of the kind of core characteristics that we look at is grit, and and we see that in our loss ratio. So I think if, if you look at we, we invest from our pre-seed funds, we invest we're the first money in. To, to new companies. And if you think about the global statistics for startups that fail, it, it's about 93% of any startup that is, is, is started will fail uh, on average. Now, our loss ratio is 10%. Now, that will increase as the funds you know, become older, but it's still much, much lower than the curve. And I think that just comes down to this a few different things. ASIS relentless focus on great co-founding teams combined with uh, a truly validated business model. The other is we built this tech platform called Amplifusion, where we can, pro- can provide a lot of value to the founders as they go through this journey. A, you know, if you're a fintech founder, we have created a sector circle around fintech where you will have peers across the globe who are building fintech companies, advisors within the industry that I spoke about earlier, access to investors who are interested in investing into fintech so you can get great co-investors in the subsequent rounds. We have a lot of the LPs that invest into either our pre-seed funds or our global Series A to Series T fund. They also want to do direct co-investments into our portfolio companies. So not only do we have the network of VCs, but we also have LPs that specifically have invested into us to invest into our portfolio companies. So we can provide access to capital. And then we have a lot of data on what what works and what happens doesn't work, right? We get now 50,000 applicants per year from founders. We now invest in about 1% of them. 
And then we follow those founders very carefully throughout their journey. We have all the data on our portfolio companies, but we also have the data on the ones we didn't invest in. Plus, there's quite a lot of data available now on Crunchbase, PitchBook, and other places. So you can benchmark your decisions up against other private market decisions. And I think you know, business model, platform, plus uh, you know, informational advantage, just ensure that we can make good investment decisions that increases the likelihood of putting your money into something that will succeed and, and not into something that will not succeed, which is, is you know, 93% of the time what happens. It's interesting. Many, many, many people that invest in VC talk about the moonshots and, and are willing to lose a lot of money for the first five to seven years as they hope that the, the business will finally turn over a new leaf and, and start to become profitable. You know, how much do you think about profitability for a lot of the businesses that you invest in? So it depends very much on the business model. So the advantage we have is, you know, in one of our pre-seed funds, we'll have about 120 investments that we make into, into companies that we help build. And, and it's a quite well-diversified portfolio in, in, a, in a few different aspects. One thing that is completely lost in the VC world today on average is the diversity of the founder group, right? So just pull up one interesting statistic. In the US, 2% of venture capital goes to female founders which is just crazy because 50% of the global talent is, is female. So there's, you're losing out on a lot of incredible talent. And in Antler, 40% of our portfolio companies have a female co-founder and 80% of them have a female CEO. So we can just access way more talent in, into our portfolio. So we have diversity in the type of talent coming in. Same with minorities and, and people from different countries uh, and different socioeconomic backgrounds. We since we're supporting them throughout this platform, we can literally access raw intrinsic talent instead of someone who already has connections to investors and mentors and so on because we can provide that. So that's, I think, one, one aspect in terms of diversity. The other thing we can do with our portfolio is we can make one third of our portfolio be this type of moonshots and we can make one third of our portfolio be more kind of industry 4.0, which is improving existing parts of businesses where there's less risk and we can make one third of the portfolio more proven models, which is even lower risk than the moonshots. So I think you need to ensure that there's some diversity in the portfolio there, because if you have, there are obviously some, some, some VCs out there who will make kind of eight to 10 investments in one fund. And if all of those are moonshots, there is the chance that all of them will, will, will fail. Right. But, I think we, both in our global Series A to Series C fund plus the pre-seed funds, think a lot about the, the diversity in the portfolio to ensure that there's a lot of security there to deliver a certain amount of, of return. And then you have a certain part of the portfolio that if it kicks in, can be those type of companies that deliver a thousand X on the investment that we put into them and then can drive uh, the fund into and above uh, performance. You mentioned that you've got 50,000 applications last year um, from, from founders. That's a, it's a huge, huge pipeline that you have there. You know, it's also difficult as you think, as you're going through all these companies, sometimes you might find someone that maybe be competing with one of your existing uh, investees. You know, how do you think about sort of the next rounds that you do versus the investees that you, you've got that come to you looking for money? Um, do you, do you look to maybe, you know, can, um, create partnerships between some of these companies or, or you know, help, help them join, join up with the existing investees that you have? 
Yeah, so th- there, are, there are kind of three things that we do. A, we create the sector circles that I talked about. So within every industry, so within FinTech, within SaaS, we actually just had our gathering for software as a service companies now recently. And um, we can provide companies that are working on solving similar type problems with access to a lot of other founders across. You don't necessarily want to talk to your competitor in your own market, right? But talking to your competitor in Europe or the US, at least in the early stages, as you're growing before you become that global platform, is just incredibly valuable. And, and through those networks, uh, you can create a lot more momentum and avoid kind of reinventing the view every time getting input when there's new regulation, you can go together around kind of figuring out how you're going to figure that out, hiring, so on. So that's one aspect, those practices or industry practices. The other aspect of, of having some companies within the same space, which is interesting, is we currently invest in about uh, 1% of the 50,000 people applying. So there's 49,500 people we don't invest in, and they are very interested in working in early stage tech companies. And we now created this internal talent market where our portfolio, if you ask portfolio companies, after building a great co-founding team, validating the business model and raising capital, the most important thing actually for success is hiring a, a very strong team that can help execute on that vision. And it's very hard in the early days to do that because you, you don't have much money to pay them. So you need to convince them that their equity will be worth something, right? And we have these people who really want to be founders themselves that are very open to be early employees and work for equity in these businesses. So you have this internal talent market. And uh, so that's, that's one aspect. And, and the third aspect is longer term. Obviously, within this global portfolio, there will be M&A opportunities for our portfolio companies. And and this is also not uh, a well-known phenomenon, but uh, you know, most companies as they enter kind of series B, series C, also become acquisition engines of smaller startups within their space. And we can help facilitate that. And that helps with a lot of the growth. Mm-hmm. Let's let's maybe go into something that obviously is a, always a big issue with with businesses as they as they grow and survive, and that's creating some sort of a moat around them or an unfair advantage. Um, how do you think about that when you're looking at at um, at these VC well early stage ventures? It's 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 about two things. Uh, one is our founders, right? So we want to create an unfair advantage for our founders, no matter where they come from, and we want to do that through offering them insights into what's happening globally within the space that they're building in from day one. So for example, we have this company here that we were looking at in Singapore, amazing team, AAA, fantastic team, but they were working on a travel tech ID and we could go to them as a platform and say, hey, you know, there's 120 other companies in the world working on exactly the same thing that you are doing. And by the way, the most successful of these 120 companies is worth $20 million after five years. So perhaps you should consider doing something different, meaning that, you know, there's 120 people who tried to do exactly the thing, and none of them made it, made it possible, right? So, and then they, they, they flipped their model to the prop tech model, and they're now incredibly successful. So there are these types of insights and coaching and value that we can provide to create a bit of that advantage on every stage. Then when they're you know, at doing their Series A, we have a database of 3,000 investors that we have a relationship across the globe. And we can go in and say, okay, you're an Australian company, you're doing your Series A, you're in health tech. Okay, we narrowed out those 3,000 investors down to, these are the 50 people you should talk to that are most likely to do your next round. 
which means that instead of having to call around and spend six months getting to these 50 people, we can just send, okay, here's 50 emails, bang, you're welcome. So we're trying to kind of create that competitive advantage for our travelers the whole way. The other thing that is very important for us is um, creating a competitive advantage for our LPs. So a lot of the LPs that come into to our funds, we don't look at it as pure financial investment. A lot of our LPs do come in just for pure financial investment, but most of them are interested in two other aspects. A is Cohen, direct co-investment opportunities, where we have built the platform where not only do we send them an email every time we have a co-investment opportunity, but there's a platform where our, found, our LPs can go in and see live the deal flow that we have and see some of the due diligence that we've done and why we're very excited about these companies. And they can do the same type of funneling as we talked about. And the other thing is, is the impact side of things where I think more and more investors on top of the financial returns and direct investments really care about having a positive impact with the money that they put in. And, and we report back very clearly on that. So we can also help create a competitive advantage for our LPs. Let's move to maybe a more controversial topic, and that is just the power of, of some of the existing unicorns and, and not so much, you know, the most recent ones, but there are some some other unicorns that have been around for a while now, such as the Facebooks and, and Googles and Microsofts out there, very dominant players. There's a lot of concerns about their monopolistic style power. You know, how do you think about, you know, when you're funding new ventures, how do you think about whether they can compete with the existing, um, you know, dominant players or are looking to potentially sell into? How do you think about that decision? Yeah, so I, I, I think in, in most circumstances, that monopolistic power is a bit over-exaggerated. So, for example, you know, I was part of building Solora here in the region. And, you know, one of the people we had, we, we had part of Solora later built Shopee and a lot of my friends built Lazada. And, you know, everyone was, you know, when we started this business, they were like, why are you doing this? Amazon or Alibaba is just going to come and, and take the whole market. But they didn't, right? I mean, Alibaba <laughs> had to spend, uh, you know, almost $10 billion in acquisitions. And Amazon is tiny here in the region so far. And it's the market is just kind of dominated by local operators. Same with uh, Uber, like right? people were worried about Uber just, kind of killing and dominating the entire market. I mean, they started Uber Eats and they would kill all the Eat platforms. And, you know, it's a $100 billion company now or, or something like that. And it's just very hard when you're a large company to compete on all different types of areas. So if you're an incredible co-founding team that finds some more value where they can create a better product, uh, you can carve out a pretty big niche where you can actually build pr- pretty large business even within something that is quite close to the core of these these major companies. So so that's number one. I think the second aspect is you should look at these fast-growing platforms and see where there are adjacent opportunities to to build a business model on top of them, right? So a great example is Pinduadua on WeChat, social selling in China, Ninjavan in in Southeast Asia. It's a very fast-growing logistics company which is just, you can tap onto and build rather profitable growth. And it is a tech company because a lot of the order logistics, how the customers see the packaging coming and logging into APIs of all the various sellers and platforms that are out there. They build some amazing technology to enable that to happen. And and they're able to, to grow together with these large platforms. So I think, you know, 
for regulators, it's going to be important to uphold, you know, the rules that have been set and have been approved over decades and continue to do that. But I think as a founder, I wouldn't be so worried about it. I really think that as long as, you know, if Google decides to spend $2 billion to do exactly what you are doing and exactly the market that you're in, you might consider doing something different. But in, in most circumstances, if you identify an area where there's an opportunity to launch a better product and you can either tag on the platform or you can outcompete the platform, you, you, can, you can still do that. It's interesting. I think we have started to see a lot more diseconomies of scale with many of these organizations. Um, you know, Apple is not is is another example where they've tried to do different bits and pieces. They tried a, uh, an automated car that, that failed dismally. They've, they've tried a whole range of social <laughs> platforms as well that haven't worked too. So there are diseconomies of scale, which then provide opportunities to, to VC, which is, which is exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, Alex. And that, that brings me up to, to another point which I think is important is this disruption is just going to accelerate, right? We live at this time now where it, it's a truly unique period of time because A, the cloud uh, and other things like hard, you know, hardware, prototype, factories, and all this type of stuff has lowered the cost of building a business considerably, right? It's, it's very easy to get to market rather rapidly if you have a great team working on something that really makes sense. So the cost of building a business has gone down. So you're gonna have more and more people doing it. At the same time, pension plans, sovereign wealth funds, also, you know, certain type of, in, in some locations, retail customers can now start investing into the private market. So there's an inflow of capital into the private markets that, that we've never seen before. You also have like 10 to 12 technologies maturing at the same time from AI to blockchain, to IoT, to biotech, genome technology. You can go on and on where all of these technologies that have been in the lab up until recently are now uh, suddenly available to disrupt big companies. And part of it is disruption, so basically doing things that are already done more effectively. And part of it is literally creating whole new industries. And we're just at the very beginning of this. Like if you look at the trends, we're just at the very beginning of this. It's, It's by far the best time ever to come into this space because now you can actually deploy quite a lot of capital at very strong returns for a long period of time. It's interesting you mentioned that, particularly given the impact of COVID it has had on many small businesses, there is a lot of interest from governments also to support VC. Um, you know, there's now more pressure on on sovereign funds and on also the super funds in Australia to help this part of the market. Maybe what's what's an area that you think the institutional investors uh, feel uncomfortable typically with VC? What, what's particularly something that you think that they maybe see as an issue but but could easily overcome? Yeah, so I, I think there are a couple of aspects there that we have looked at. So, for example, when we talked to our institutional investors, we're, we're getting a lot of them on board now, uh, is they want it to be more of a partnership than just an investment that you, you forget about, right? And, and and a partnership for us is, a it, it obviously requires all of those things that these institutional investors need, which is triple A, super transparent, reporting, and you know what's going on day to day, and you also know how this this are is you know the, what the facts are now, how that's likely to affect the kind of ten year outcome or the outcome over the next year. So I think this reporting part is incredibly important for institutions and something that VCs haven't done all that well up until now, and something we've taken very very seriously. The second thing is more and more institutions have started to build a co-invest arm where they go directly and invest into some of these larger, fastest growing private companies. 
and they will often invest into VCs to get access to that to that deal flow. Now, there the way the private market works is it's, it's very hard to secure legal rights to invest directly into these businesses, even if you're an LP into a fund. So to make such a partnership work, you actually need to ensure that you have a platform where it's easy to access that information for the partners and that they can get access to these deals and know about these companies early enough and start building a relationship with them so they can get into the very, very best deals when they happen. And to complement their own due diligence on those direct investment opportunities with kind of data and insights from the VCs. And I think these things exist as a concept. And I think it's something uh, a lot of VCs haven't done great up until now and then and that, that we focus a lot on. So those are directly related to, I think, financial performance. And then the last aspect is impact space, which, you know, for us is incredibly important, uh, both in terms of diversity, the number of jobs we create, the impact they have on the economy, the problems we're solving, and those impact on the UN SDGs. Uh, I think a lot of institutions also have invested into VCs for that type of impact. And then going back to the reporting point I mentioned earlier, uh, sometimes haven't been given the, the, the kind of necessary uh, information to kind of then uh, show to the, their government or their customers or their pensioners the, the impact that their money has on the ecosystem. And I think if you can share those stories in a compelling way, it makes their job easier. Uh, so those are the three areas we are focused on, uh, which is, I think there are other great VCs out there who are doing this really well right now, but I think in general, uh, in the private markets, this has been a difficulty. Look, the other area that you probably haven't touched on is that the ability to generate alpha has got harder and harder in, in financial markets. So people are looking for another source of alpha and VC um, provides that it's an illiquid source of, of capital that is, is then invested and there's a potential for a longer term alpha that, that people can, can capture. I think you're spot on, Alex. And, and if you have the right portfolio strategy, uh, I mean, we run a lot of Monte Carlo analysis on this and, and our own portfolio and how we, for example, this global $600 million Series A to Series C fund now that we set up, what is the best possible portfolio that we can put in place there to capture the alpha, but at the same time ensure that the risk profile of the portfolio is rather low. And if you do the analysis on this, in the private market, you can you can reduce volatility significantly. Uh, we spoke about it a little bit earlier around the portfolio strategy and the moonshots versus more secure bets. But but also just in terms of the number of companies you invest in and what stage you invest in can really affect your risk. Because if you look at the venture capital ecosystem as a whole, it's a lot of volatility in performance. So, you know, you'll have funds that consistently deliver 40, 50% <laughs> that there are, and then you have, you know, many many funds that deliver less money back than was invested into the fund ten years later. If you do those things that I just went through, plus you have you put kind of standard financial market thinking into into how you structure up your portfolio, you can actually lower that volatility quite significantly while at the same time uh, ensuring that you capture a lot of the alpha. Well, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Magnus. Thank you, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.